A biblical handling of the emotions is foundational for spiritual maturity. This is what we've been looking at these, uh, these Sundays. We're going to conclude this series today. Over the years in ministry and just observing uh, life, I've become more and more convinced that one of the reasons we can sit under great Bible teaching, great Bible preaching uh, for decade upon decade, but not make, make much progress in our walk with Christ is that the emotions have not been addressed. They've not been dealt with. And uh, we've been looking at this these, uh, these past couple of Sundays. Now, last week, we uh, asked and answered an important question, and that is, where do emotions come from? Uh, we looked at, in some detail, Jesus' words to us in Mark 7, where he conveys to us that emotions are not an external force that impose their wills on us. The statement that we hear often, the mantra we hear often in our modern-day world is, I can't help the way I feel. We look at Jesus' words to us in Mark 7, that statement doesn't really hold weight when you look at how Jesus is addressing this subject. He insists that emotions are generated from within. It's out of your heart that these things come. And uh, therefore, emotions really do reveal what we value, desire, and believe. To recap here, let me just quote Jeremy Pierre. He helps our thinking on this. He writes this. He says, emotions are the dynamic gauges of what we value. Emotions are the dynamic gauges of what we value. When we feel an emotion regarding something, we are making a statement of its value. Emotions reveal desires. So joy shows we just received something we value. Disgust is the opposite. Sadness can show we've lost something we want. Anger shows we perceive a threat to something we want. Fear is a similar reaction. Emotions are the colorful expression of our heart's desire. Emotions reveal what you really, what you truly value, desire, and believe. Now, I want to, by way of introduction to the body of this, this last message, I want to tackle two introductory um, uh, issues. I want to ask the question, why is it emotions are so tricky? Why is it they're so tricky? There are a couple of reasons why these emotions are so tricky. The first is that we lack self-awareness, okay? We lack self-awareness. That is, what we say we, we value, believe, and desire may not be what we really value, desire, and believe. We lack self-awareness. And the Bible insists on this. In Psalm 139, David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. You see what David's doing here. He's acknowledging that he does not have the capacity of self-discernment to know what's going on inside him. It's astounding. Psalm 19, but who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. We lack the powers of self-awareness. We lack the power to discern everything that's going on inside of us. You've got that famous encounter where Jesus, um, Jesus confronts the religious leaders. He says, why are you such in a hurry to, to point out the speck in your brother's eye when you have a log in your own eye? They lack self-awareness. So the scriptures teach this again and again and again. It's one of the reasons emotions are tricky is because we are not aware of everything that's going on inside us. We lack self-awareness. Even though that's the case, however, we, we're not let off the hook because of it. That's not an out we're given. If it was an out we were given, there's no reason for David to pray the prayer that he prayed. 
there's no reason for there to be accountability to the Jewish leaders. One of the reasons emotions are so tricky is that we lack self-discernment. We lack self-awareness. The second thing that makes emotions tricky is that um, (laughs) when life happens, you react in in an instant, in the blink of an eye, in fractions of a second. That is, emotions are instinctual. Emotions are instinctual. Uh, When life happens, oftentimes you will feel an emotion before you've thought through everything that had to do with you getting, uh, having that emotional response. It is not as though life happens, you gather up at your kitchen table and deliberate over what just happened before you commit to an emotional response. That's not the way it works. Emotions are instinctual. You see something, you hear something, you experience something, and in fractions of a second, you feel something. They're instinctual. This is where I want to focus the bulk of our time. Because I really do believe that the Bible teaches us that we can train our emotional instincts. That they are trainable to a degree. And if we're going to cultivate godly emotions, we need to learn to train our emotional instincts. Four practices we're going to look at to employ daily to train your emotional instincts. Okay, here are the four. We need to engage the mind, participate in worship, commit to prayer, and be a giver. Four practices to employ daily to train your emotional instincts. Okay. First, engage the mind. Uh, you will probably hear me say this uh, often. Your mind is like a vacuum cleaner that's always on, okay? Your mind is like a vacuum cleaner that's always on. Wherever you go, you're picking up stuff. It doesn't matter where you are, you're always picking up stuff. It's always on, it's never off. And what you're taking in has an incredible power power to influence how you feel. What you take in has an incredible power to train your emotional instincts, These two worlds of mind and feeling, mind and emotion, are not compartmentalized. The Bible ties those two worlds together. Let me show you. Isaiah 26.3. You will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. Notice the correlation between this emotion of peace and trusting in God, or this emotion of peace and having our thoughts fixed on God. The emotional world, the intellectual world, the emotional world, the cognitive world are not separate in the biblical worldview. They're tied together. Let me show you another one, Lamentations 3. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet, this I call to mind, (laughs) and therefore... I have hope. Here's what he calls to mind. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. Notice again the connection between the cognitive world and the emotional world here. Recalling to mind God's love, compassion, faithfulness produces hope. Let me show you another one. Romans 
8, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Here we have right thinking about spiritual realities produces peace. Your mind is like a vacuum cleaner that's always on. So take inventory for a minute. Where's it going? What's it sucking up from day to day? We need to learn to be proactive in fixing our minds on the right things. Too often, I think our emotional instincts get malformed. They get malformed when we allow our minds to become passive and reactive to external circumstances and internal waywardness. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones pastored a church in London during the early to mid-1900s. And uh, his counsel on this issue is worth paying attention to. He wrote a book on depression. He himself battled it. And uh, in this book on depression, he writes this. He says, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? You must take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself. You have to preach to yourself. Question yourself. Then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, and what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. Training our emotional instincts requires us to learn the art of preaching to ourselves. Learning the art of preaching to ourselves. We have an example of this in the scripture, Psalm 42. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Now, do you see the psalmist grabbing himself by the shirt collar? Why are you downcast? Why are you so disturbed? Come on, put your hope in God. He's preaching to himself. He's taking himself in hand and he is reminding himself of who God is. So I'll give you your first sermon you need to preach to yourself. Okay, I'll give you your first sermon. It's got a fantastic title. The title is Three Anchors of Emotional Stability. Okay? There's the, there's the title, and I tell you what, if you post this, it's going to go crazy on the web because the web loves listicles. Three this, five that, ten ways, nine ways, two ways. The web loves that. Three, the three anchors of emotional stability. Brian, anchor number one. Brian, God is superintending over the details of all activity, human and inhuman, so as to bring about his good purposes. Trust him, Brian. If you knew what God knows, you'd ask for exactly what he sends including this. Anchor number two, Brian, your present hurdles and unexpected detours, they're not worth comparing with the glory that awaits you. So you got your Game Boy taken away. Big deal. You're standing in the middle of the Grand Canyon. Anchor number three, Brian, Jesus lived the life you could never live and he died the death you'd never want to die. And because of this, you have God's acceptance full and free and nothing can change that, including this. Take a deep breath. Rest. There you go. There's your first sermon this week. Preach it to yourself. 
One of the reasons I think that we get into trouble emotionally, that our emotional instincts are malformed, is that we are listening to ourselves instead of preaching to ourselves. We are playing these tapes, these old tapes, over and over, and CDs, we're playing these CDs, we're playing these digital files over and over and over again, and they're, they're, they're communicating to us a message that is, is all wonky. You've got to take it out, and you've got to put something new in. Be proactive. Learn the art of preaching to yourself. Okay. In order to train our emotional instincts, secondly, we need to participate in worship. And I, I would add, we need to actively participate in worship. An African pastor once said of his congregation, when we are happy, we sing. And when we aren't happy, we sing until we get happy. The 18th century pastor and thinker Jonathan Edwards would agree with that. He writes this, The duty of singing praises to God seems to be appointed wholly to excite and express religious affections. No other reason can be assigned why we should express ourselves to God in verse rather than in prose and do it with music, but only that such is our nature and frame that these things have a tendency to move our affections. I really believe one of the reasons God created music and singing is because it has the ability to impact us emotionally. And remember back to the first week of this series, God's not just interested in cognitive responses to him. We were made emotional creatures. He is interested in seeing our emotional responses to him. Music and singing, as Edwards says, have the ability to excite, to inspire and express our emotional responses to truth. I wonder how many of you know the name Yip Harburg? Nobody. <laughs> uh, I thought there would be one. Uh, Yip Harburg was the lyricist for The Wizard of Oz. How many of you have heard of The Wizard of Oz? Okay. Yip Harburg wrote all the lyrics for the songs in the classic, The Wizard of Oz, he wrote, including the, the classic, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Okay, that was Yip. He wrote all the words to the songs. Yip Harburg famously once said, words make you think a thought, music makes you feel a feeling, a song makes you feel a thought. Singing helps us process the emotional dimensions of the doctrine we profess. Singing helps us process the emotional dimensions of the doctrine we profess. This is why this African pastor's quote is so profound. When we're happy, we sing. And when we aren't happy, we sing until we get happy. Why? Well, what better truth is there to feel than the gospel itself? What better truth is there out there to feel than the gospel itself? In the Bible, there's a profound link between experiencing God's salvation and expressing the joy of that through music and singing. In the Bible, there's a profound link between these two, between experiencing God's salvation and expressing the joy of that through music and singing. When God rescues his people from Slavery in Egypt. Miriam 
takes up a tambourine in hand and as all the women follow with tambourines and check this out, dancing. Heaven forbid, dancing. She takes up a tambourine, all the ladies are uh, tambourines in hand, they're dancing. She sings to them, sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. When you go back to Exodus 15 and read that in context, it is an epic time of worship. Unmatched. An epic time of worship. The people of Israel were given salvation. They experienced joy as a result of it, and the culmination of that joy is singing. Psalm 98, Isaiah 12, or other places where this occurs. And the message is consistent. Where there's salvation, there is joy, and where there is joy, there is singing. Did you know that the word sing or some version of it occurs over 200 times in the Bible? That's more than the word grace. It's no wonder Christianity has been called the singingest religion in the world. And it's one of the reasons I have a passion to see Alliance Bible Church become the singingest congregation in the Milwaukee metro area. Might it be God created us with this capacity to make music and sing and made music and singing a recurring theme in the Bible so that we will learn to feel the emotional depths of the truth we profess? In order to train our emotional instincts, we need to have this a part of our daily disciplines. We need to participate, actively participate in worship. Third, in order to train our emotional instincts, we need to commit to prayer. In order to train our emotional instincts, we need to commit to prayer. Let me show you this passage from Luke 5. Yet the news about him spread all, over, all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Look, Jesus knows what it's like to be busy. Maybe that's your world, running from one thing to the next. Jesus knows what it's like to be busy. There was always another need to be met. There was always another email or text he needed to reply to. There was always people lined up outside his office door. He knows what it's like to be busy. Yet, he's also the preeminent example of a human being who possessed incredible emotional health. Those two were juxtaposed. He's incredibly busy, very busy, in high demand. And yet, he's the preeminent example of emotional health. How can that be? How can those two things go together? Well, look at it. Jesus often. Just stop there. Often. Not occasionally, not periodically. Often. Withdrew. He went away. To lonely places and prayed. So I have a question for you. If, if Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, God in human flesh, felt he needed time away by himself to pray, what makes you think you can afford not to? 
I believe there is a direct link between a lack of private prayer and a lack of godly emotions. A lack of private prayer and a lack of godly emotions. And I will put myself out there as exhibit A. There's always another email to be answered. There's always another need to be met. There's always another task on the list or conversation to be had. I get it. And when I constantly say yes to every one of those and never say no in order to withdraw by myself to a lonely place to pray, I can feel the joy, the hope, the peace and contentment hemorrhaging out of me. Have you ever been there? As you look at your life now, do you see the presence, do you sense the presence of godly emotions, joy and peace, hope and contentment? Do you have that? If you're wondering about it, let me ask you another question. How is your private prayer life? Can what was said about Jesus be said of you? Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Lillian Guild tells an amusing story of an occasion when she and her husband were, uh, they were out driving on the highway and um, uh, they, they passed by a, a late model Cadillac that uh, was on the side of the road, its hood up, apparently broken down. And so uh, she and her husband decided to pull over and see if they could do anything. And and they, uh, they came up to the driver. He was um, visibly agitated by what was happening. And so they asked him what was going on. And he s- explained to them that, that uh, while he knew he was low on fuel in, in his car, he was in a hurry to get to a very important business meeting. And so he had decided to skip the gas station. And so there he was. <laughs> so Lillian and her dear husband uh, happened to have a spare gallon of gas in the trunk of their car. They emptied that gallon into this thirsty Cadillac and explained to the driver that there was a gas station just a, just a few miles down the road. So uh, he thanked them profusely and, and rushed into his car and sped off in a hurry. Twelve miles later, <laughs> Lillian and her husband driving down the highway spot the same car, <laughs> same driver, this time even more agitated than he was the first time. So they stopped and they got out of their cars and went to him and said, well, what happened? And he said sheepishly, I was in a hurry and I decided to skip the gas station. (laughs) Now you hear a story like this, right? And you think, how can you be so stupid? Until we realize that's what we do. This is what we do. We are constantly pressing on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and we never stop to refuel. We never stop to withdraw to a lonely place to pray. In order to train our emotional instincts, we need to commit to private prayer the way Jesus committed to private prayer. What was said about him, may that be true of us we often withdraw to lonely places to pray. 
Fourth, in order to train our emotional instincts, we need to be a giver. We need to be givers. February 2004 marked the beginning of a seismic shift in our worldwide culture. Human beings will never be the same after what took place in February of 2004. In February 2004, Facebook was launched. And human beings will never be the same. And that was just the first shoe to drop. Two years later came Twitter. Four years after Twitter came Instagram. And now there are too many to count. Facebook now boasts two billion monthly users. What makes that number so astonishing that the best estimates out there are that 1.5 billion people lived in developed parts of our world. Compute that math. Social media has changed the world, and I think we're beginning just to scratch the surface of understanding the depths of social media's impact on the world. Now, with this exponential growth of social media, so have the books and the articles studying the effects of social media on the human race. Maria Konnikova wrote an incredibly revealing article in the New Yorker entitled, How Facebook Makes Us Unhappy. Her article isn't so much an original study of social media's effects as it is surveying 16 other studies <laughs> on Facebook and its impact on the human race. And one theme that Konnikova discovers across these studies is noteworthy. She writes this, when people engaged in direct interaction with others, that is, posting on walls, messaging, or liking something, their feelings of bonding and general social capital increased, while their sense of loneliness decreased. But when participants simply consumed a lot of content passively, Facebook had the opposite effect, lowering their feelings of connection and increasing their sense of loneliness. So don't miss what the scientists are, are discovering here. Being a consumer of social media leads to greater unhappiness. Being a giver on social media leads to greater connection. Now, what the social media studies are discovering is not new information. The prophet Isaiah wrote about this over 2,500 years ago. He would have predicted this. Isaiah 58, he writes this. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Let's take a minute to walk through that. Then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. This is emotional language. It's emotional imagery. It's poetic parallelism. Darkness and gloom are parallel terms and it's describing negative emotions. Maybe included in there is despair, depression, the doldrums. The text says, when you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, that is, when you're giving of yourself 
You're giving of yourself in order to serve others. There's a change that takes place. Maybe that means giving your time, your energy, your attention, your money. Maybe it's all of that. When you're a giver, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. In other words, when we experience, we experience an emotional shift from gloom to joy as we shift from consuming to giving. Experience an emotional shift from gloom to joy as we shift from consuming to giving. In order to train our emotional instincts, we need to be givers more than we are consumers. These are four practices to employ in your life to train your emotional instincts. Keep in mind, our emotions are instinctual. They happen, they really do reflect the genuine condition of our hearts. In order to train the emotional instincts, we've got to be diligent in cultivating some practices in our lives that help shape what is malformed. Engage the mind. Learn the art of preaching to yourself more than listening to yourself. Actively participate in worship. Commit to private prayer. Be a giver. I want to conclude with one additional reflection uh, before we finish up this morning. These, doing these or working these practices out in daily life assumes that you're already a born-again Christian. It assumes you're already a genuine believer. But I don't want to make that assumption that, that we're all on the same page with that. In 2 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he says, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. So I want to take some time to do that. Because if you're not in the faith, if you're not a genuine believer in Christ, then you're skipping the first and most critical step in experiencing emotional transformation. Let me illustrate that. One pastor tells a story. He said, once during a prison Bible study in the drug and alcohol unit, I was teaching on the bondage of the will. One of the inmates bristled and then blurted out, Preacher, do you mean to tell me that I don't have free will? Yes, that's what I'm saying the Bible teaches, I replied. I don't buy it, he said irritably. So I asked him, are you incarcerated for a drug or alcohol-related offense? The question was a safe one, considering my location. Yes, he sheepishly replied. I asked, have you ever wanted to stop abusing drugs and alcohol? He said quietly, yes, I've tried many times. Well, if your will is free and you can do what you will, then why not just stop? The reason you can't say no is that you're a slave. Your will is a slave to your sinful nature. See, maybe your problem isn't drugs. Maybe it's not alcohol, but maybe it's emotional. It's anger, it's anxiety, it's bitterness, it's envy, it's lust. Just like this man who is incarcerated, you cannot put yourself together by a sheer act of willpower. The Bible insists again and again and again that we are more corrupt than that. You're not free to do that. You're a slave to your sinful nature. What you need is for God to perform a miracle in you and on you. This is what it means to be a Christian. See, being a Christian is not about waking up one morning, 
resolving to be more morally and spiritually better from here on out. That's not what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian is hitting your knees and pleading with God to change you from the inside out, to make you into a new creation. Being a Christian is about agreeing with God that you're a slave to your sinful nature and you need him to free you from it. And until you've done that, you're skipping the first and most critical step in experiencing emotional transformation. My plea with you this morning is to do this. Why wait? Take the moments at the end of this service to to plea with God. Say, God, I can't fix myself. I am a slave to my sinful nature, and I need you to free me. I need you to change me. I need you to perform a miracle on me and in me. And if there's anything about that that doesn't make sense, that's cloudy or gray, Talk to me, talk to one of the pastors, talk to one of the elders. We'll be happy to talk with you about it. Because let me tell you, that is a prayer. That is a prayer that God is eager to answer. Let's pray. Gracious God, I do pray for the person here who needs this miracle. They need you to free them. They need you to save them. Help them to see what it means to be a genuine Christian. It's not about waking up one morning resolving to work harder. It's about hitting our knees in complete surrender and dependence on you. Holy Spirit, convince them of their need for Jesus as Savior. God, I pray for those of us here who have already been given new life. I pray we would, through grace-driven effort, work to cultivate the practices needed to train our emotional instincts. God, we thank you so much for the time that we have had these weeks to reflect on this important issue. So we leave it in your hands, we leave it in the Spirit's hands, and God, we just ask for fruit so that your people may glorify the name of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And God's people said, amen.